Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You can see the domino effect in real time. We are in the midst of a, a reckoning right now. I fundamentally believe that, and it, it couldn't come soon enough. Hello, lovely people of podcasts, and welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy, political editor of Guardian Australia and the host, and with me this week from Adelaide, Sarah, I think you're in Adelaide. I am indeed, and it's... Um, <laughs> Despite the horrors of this week, the uh, the day here in Adelaide is beautiful. So, oh, you know, well that's good. Mm. A little bit joy, a little bit of joy to be had. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure most listeners will recognise the voice, but that is the Green Senator Sarah Hanson Young, who has kindly joined the show this week. In well, I said to Sarah just before we started the recording, I don't even know where to start really <laughs> with the week that we've just had or the week before that, but we're going to do our best. So. I thought, Sarah, if I can, I would just roll both of us back to 2018 because that's the last time I had you on the show to talk about these issues. Yes. So when, and by these issues, (laughs) I I, I imagine everyone's clear what we mean. (laughs) We're having the most extraordinary and necessary conversation about, well, about parliamentary culture, about how allegations of harassment and sexual assault and worse are treated. Sarah and I had a conversation about this in 2018 because at that point, I don't want to say patronisingly you found your voice because you've always had your voice, but you were finding a voice, I think, at that time about how to report these things institutionally or put a framework around these things so that we could have a proper debate about it. So... Back then, I went. I went back and I had a look and at did what you? you said to me then. <laughs> yeah, I did. I was thinking yeah, about I it did. this morning as well, actually, because I, it, it struck me at the time that it was such an important conversation to be having then, um, and how how much things have changed. Um, I. I just I can't believe the bravery of some of the young women that we've been hearing from in recent times. And, you know, I, I, you need these moments in order to kind of throw forward to the next one. And mm. they're, they're good bookmarks. Yeah, exactly. And And I think implicitly there you're saying things are a bit different than the last time we spoke, and I think that's right. But at that point you said your view was the, you described it as the pact mentality 
in Parliament mm. uh, was was ever present, assertive, and getting worse at that point, which is why you drew a line there, why you decided that you would take on the then Senator David Leonhelm. We can talk about that in a bit. Mm. But it was because of your concern that things were getting worse at that time. So do you think, obviously, this has been a really scarifying conversation over the last couple of weeks. So based on that bookmark, as you put it, things worse, better, improving a little bit, where would you put it? Look, I think things are getting better. I think the culture in politics and Parliament House is still going to take quite some time to change, absolutely. But the issues that I called out and I was experiencing in the chamber at the time have definitely seen a, a marked shift. I think there is a bit more sensitivity about treating people more respectfully as work colleagues. But really what this, where we're going now is that people are starting to break their silence on these issues. And when I spoke to you last time, Catherine, I talked about the, the difficulty that it is even for me at the time as somebody who has you know, a very privileged position in parliament to show enough vulnerability that I could call out what was going on for me. And, and it does, it's, it's hard to do. It's really hard to break the code of silence. And what we've seen since then is some pretty horrific stories coming out. But the good part of it is that they are and that that code mm. of silence is cracking. We've got young women like Brittany Higgins who um, was treated appallingly to be, you know, sexually assaulted, allegedly raped in her boss's office by a senior colleague is bad enough. To then have that followed up by it being dealt with as a political scandal needing to be managed as opposed to a crime that needed to be reported is extraordinary. But she has been able to um, come forward and tell her story. And I'm, I think that in itself shows that we are, we are making some headway. We really are. And I've, since all of these, the big amount of focus on what's been going on in Parliament and the culture in Parliament, and I don't know about other MPs, I suspect it's the same, but I've just been inundated by women right across the country saying, I've got a really similar story. I've got a really similar story. That happened to me when I called out David Lionhelm. Men and women saying either they had a similar story or their sister or their mum or their daughter or their girlfriend, mm. uh, their wife, you know, had put up with this type of harassment in the workplace. So each time we somebody steps up, it really does allow a licence for others and that is what is so powerful and you can see the domino effect in real time. We are in the midst of a, a reckoning right now. I fundamentally believe that mm. and it, it couldn't come soon enough. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> it's somewhat overdue. But just step back uh, just a fraction, Sarah, mm. because you said it was when you decided to call out David Leonhelm who'd said some really 
well, I don't, I don't know how you'd characterise what he said to you in the chamber. It was, it was. Well, gross. the court, um, the court this week, Catherine described it yes. as highly offensive, grotesque, and obviously sexist. There you so. are. Well, you couldn't get a better description. <laughs> also, there was also um, uh, a reference to boys-only locker room yes. behaviour, which I think is actually very, very important for you know senior judges on the full bench of the federal court to to be recognising that this is something that in the past we've just gone, oh well, that's just boys, that's just lads, no harm. Yeah. Actually, yeah. it's a fundamental shift even for the justice system to be naming this behaviour like that. Yeah, I agree. But in terms of where, because I, I imagine, like you've said, basically you've been inundated by people wanting to share, wanting to be part of a really big reckoning, right? And so have I. Yes. <laughs> so has anyone on the field at the moment, I think. Mm. And there is this kind of great universality to these stories, which is what makes them so powerful and what makes the momentum of what's happening at the moment so critical. But, and I don't want to stay for the whole conversation in 2018, far from it, we've got lots of things to get through, but I want to understand what it was in 2018. Sorry, I don't mean that, what it was, we know what it was, but what happened in your own mind to make you think, no, I am, like, stuff it. This is bad. I'm not going to cop it anymore. I'm going to run the risk of looking like the complainer or looking like the whatever, right? I'm going to run the risk and do it because there will be women listening to this conversation between you and I wrestling with that decision. So what what was it that made you speak up? Um, if I'm... Brutally honest, it was that I was beginning to hate where I worked. I was beginning to hate and feeling anxious every time I walked into the building. Uh, walking into the chamber was just, oh, I was becoming not the person that I had spent nearly 10 years training to be someone who stands yep. tall and, you know, ha- takes the fight on. Even my body language w- was changing. I would sit in the chamber kind of hunched over, almost as if, you know, waiting for the bullets to start firing. And I wouldn't have been able to survive, actually. I wouldn't have been able to stand up and recontest the election if I didn't change something. Mm. And so for me, it was a decision that this was about survival. This was about me having to be honest with myself. Because it wasn't just what Senator at the time, Lionhelm, said to me. It had been an an accumulation of this sexist, sexualised bullying and harassment over a number of years and... I hadn't even realised how normalised I had allowed it to become. Mm. And so, yeah, I just, I, I think that's, you know, when I had to make a decision to call it out, yes, I'd had enough, <laughs> but I'd also had enough of myself. I've, I'd also had enough of having to feel like I, all of my energy was going on to protecting myself, don't react, don't get upset about this, just 
you know, shut up, put up with it, that takes a lot of energy. Mm. And I was spending a whole lot of energy on that and not, and, and not enough on the things that I was there to do. Mm. Mm. Okay. Now, you mentioned, uh, well, sort of implicit in, in this, in your own story, finding your institutional voice, pursuing David Leonhelm through the courts. Uh, now you've had uh, involvement both with Brittany Higgins and also with the woman who has made an allegation, a sexual assault allegation against the Attorney General Christian Porter, uh, or, or with friends of hers, I should say. Anyway, I'll, I'll get you to step people through mm. what you've what you've done. So what I can assume implicitly from what you've said, you are now actively in the business of creating space for others in order to find their own way of telling their stories. So I think that's implicit from what you've said. Why don't you share with the listeners what you've done in these mm. two cases, what's happened? I mean, with, obviously within the bounds of um, <laughs> proper confidences and so on. Yeah. Look, I think you've described it well there, Catherine, that, you know, it is, I, I feel a huge responsibility to provide space for other women now to come forward whether that's in the parliament, of course, that's very close to my heart because it's where I work. It's where I've, 99% of my energies go. But it's also because of the tone that it sets for the rest of the country and the rest of the community. So it's implicitly important to get it right there. So yes, creating space, but I genuinely believe that you, you, no one can do this on their own. And so when you provide space for somebody to come forward to have their voice, you can't leave them standing on their own waiting for the first gush of wind to blow them over. Mm. And that is not going to help. You can't just say, okay, here you go. So it's a tired old, you know, phrase, but women supporting women is absolutely essential. Men supporting women is important too will be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And providing space for that is really important. We, you know, we talked about that last time. I think there is much more that we can do as a society to find the right balance there. But, yeah, providing space. And I think so in the case of Brittany Higgins, you know, I really wanted her to know straight away that I know what it's like in the midst of a media storm about something that is so deeply personal. Mm. So one of the, the key things is making sure that... Because when you're in the midst of that, it feels like it will never end. Mm. We can't see through the end of the tunnel. So simple things like that are really important for people when they're coming forward, that just the, even though this is consuming your every day right now and every moment and every thought in your head and you feel like every person who passes you on the street is judging you, mm. that does end. Yeah, yeah, that feeling of being so conspicuous. Yes. Yes. That does yeah. end. Yeah. And one of the things that is really interesting for, for women in the midst of this, particularly when it's done so publicly, I think is everyone's talking about you, but nobody or very few people pick up the phone and see if you're okay. And not because they don't care actually, but they assume that everybody else is calling so they don't want to hassle you. They don't want to put any more pressure on you. And so, you know, making sure for women who do want to come forward that those types of things 
are understood that that's normal. Creating a space to to ensure that there are people watching out for them and caring for them and mm. giving them that support. But also, when you're in the middle of a big issue like this and what we're facing right now, you need allies. And when I say we can't just provide a space for women to come forward and tell their story and leave them standing there on their own, this is a monumental shift that we're asking society to take here. Yeah. So we all yeah. have to t- get some. We we all have to have some skin in the game. We really, really do. And so you know, sitting back and going, oh this is all too uncomfortable, oh, I don't want to put myself forward in this, I'll wait this one out. That's, I understand that, but I understand it's uncomfortable, uh, but we can't allow, if we seriously want to see people come forward, we can't be leaving them on their own. We just can't. Mm. What do you think too about the coverage over time? I'm really, I'm interested in your view about this. Mm. Uh because I'll be honest, I've said I have said publicly that journalistically, when Julia Gillard was the prime minister, I did not do enough mm. to call out the grotesque sexism and, at times, misogyny she was dished up as prime minister. And I've explained the reason for that, and it's because you know you're talking about reckonings. <laughs> I didn't honestly didn't want to believe it was happening. Yeah, it just it, it was so threatening to my view of where women sat in terms of the arc of progress, that I think that was a big problem for me. Mm. I could see it there, but I didn't actually want to engage with what it was because it would have just completely put me in a different space. But I think your description of your own experience there is how, as a community, we've, we responded to it. None of us did enough. Mm. But also part of that... You're saying, you know, you didn't want to accept that that's how it was. I think there is often a fear when we see these things going on that we wish and we thought we'd moved past and were better and we'd, you know, we'd, yes, that arc of progress has was much further, that acknowledging it kind of validates that we haven't got that far. And so we're kind of, oh, shit, we're back here again. <laughs> Right, and so exactly. if you, as soon as you acknowledge it and you validate it, then it makes it true. You are back here, mm. but progress isn't like that, is it? Progress is always a bit of edge this way, edge that way, edge mm. this way. Stop, start. It's, it yeah. is move sideways, move yeah, and, and yeah, yeah, you know. And I think you know it was a huge step to have Julia Gillard elected as our first female prime minister. That was a massive step forward. Did we do enough to s- support her when she was there? All of us? Any of us? No, I don't think we did either. And in many regards, you know, this idea of what I'm saying, you have to create space, but you can't Mm. leave the person standing there on their own. No. Is what what has happened. And that is is what has happened to Julia, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the point. It's sort of like there is this space creation exercise, but that we're all learning. Uh, you know, you've learned. I, in my different sphere, have learned, have tested propositions. Anyway, it's, it's just like at a cultural level, at a, at a societal level, it's really fascinating mm. to, to watch this evolution and to watch things shift, you know, in quite a short space of time. You did, Sarah, think about some 
ways just back in the in the theatre of the parliament mm. where things might improve talking about perhaps a women's caucus you know, how structural things might be put in place for staff mm. and we're of course waiting on the results of this review that the government's going to launch into culture and workplace issues, which I suspect will probably be in the public domain by the time people are listening to this on the weekend. Mm. But taking on board the fact that you think things are a bit better in in terms of the parliamentary sphere, notwithstanding these terrible, well, the Brittany Higgins absolutely terrible example, right? How do you think that taking your proposition of that women shouldn't be out there alone in the breeze, Mm. right, trying to front these difficult things, in an environment like politics where there are partisan issues, where where it's a very high combat workplace, et cetera, what would you like to see put in place to make this just a little bit easier? Look, I do think we struggle to get outside the confines of the party when dealing with these issues. It's a big part of the problem. It creates another layer of secrecy, of unspoken loyalty about uh, Mm. things when uh, it happens. And, of course, the issue with how Brittany Higgins's case has been managed has really exposed all of that in a very clear way where information is power in politics. It can be easily weaponised. And part of the problem when it comes to these types of issues, whether it's harassment, bullying or something far more serious in relation to rape or sexual assault, is that it instantly gets seen as a scandal Mm. as opposed to something that was wrong, requires accountability and indeed a crime. Mm. I think the party structure makes that even more difficult. I was talking to a a male colleague on the Senate side the day that the Brittany Higgins story broke. Mm -hmm. Conservative. And he said, you know, we're talking about, we're standing in the corridor just talking and we were both reflecting on just how awful it was, how our staff were feeling. I've got all female staff in my office and they felt it really deeply. He talked about the fact that there were staff in his office that were feeling it really deeply. It was like there was this collective guilt seeping through the corridors over those few days in a way that... That's a good way to put it, yeah. So in this conversation, he said, oh, you're right about it being, you know, the, the reason why things don't get dealt with properly, Sarah, is because it's so easy to weaponize it politically. Mm. And I said, yes, yes. And he said, I think, you know, if we're serious about this, we need a process established or we need some type of, uh, not not just cross-party in terms of members of the parliament now, his suggestion was actually, how about former members of parliament who know the culture, understand the realities, but don't actually have skin in the game in terms of the current who, what, now, when. And so I think even having that conversation and he, he you know, and, and him putting forward this type of solution, which now we know there's, there is a cross-party review that's been set up, fingers crossed and with some good effort that that will deliver some good outcomes for staff. Mm. I think it's quite clear already that Brittany Higgins' bravery has not been in vain. 
there are good things coming out of this already, things that should have happened a long time ago, but now they are happening. But the reason for telling you about this conversation with this other conservative senator was the mindset is already shifting. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can I can give you one back actually on that point. I was also speaking to a member of the government reasonably soon after the Higgins story broke. And this person made the point to me that's really stuck in my mind over the last few weeks that at the time the Four Corners program aired and government MPs were discussing that in their party room, the attitude was quite defensive, a bit hostile, mm-hmm. you know, just, just deeply uncomfortable and a bit and, and bristly, mm-hmm. right? Bristly. Mm. Whereas, whereas you know, roll forward only a matter of a few months, really, like three, four months, I don't know how long, mm. really, between one and the other. But this person remarked to me, and again, and it wasn't in a self-serving way, that the, the sort of rest, the resting disposition in the party room had really shifted. Mm. By the time the Higgins story appeared, people were much more shaken and worried and engaged in a in a substantive way mm. rather than in a sort of shut down mm. political way and i think that does indicate things are moving yes right and yes. and it's good you and i can give people some hope <laughs> in this conversation well, I, well, are... I, I think that's really important actually because we do need hope <laughs> we yes, desperately yeah. need hope at times like this um but also it is that's how social change happens you do have to acknowledge the step forward and that sometimes there is a lag. And I think what we've seen, and you've just described that really well, that the difference between when the Four Corners uh, Canberra bubble story came out, which, by the way, members of the community were horrified about, but there was a siege mentality in the building. It wasn't just from the government side either, I must say. There were people across... various different political persuasions and the different parties going, oh, gosh, you know, hope they don't turn turn the focus on here. Mm. So there's been a lag. And now we've got this really important, serious case that's broken and people are going, yeah, right, we can't keep ignoring this anymore. We do actually mm. have to deal with it. Mm. Yeah, and it's we need to bear that in mind. Just one more thing, because time's against mm. us. Obviously, I mean, we need to make very clear that with Brittany Higgins, it's it's an allegation. It has not been tested. The sexual assault is an allegation. Also, that in the latest case, there is an allegation or was an allegation of sexual assault against Christian Porter, which he completely categorically denies, as everybody who would have seen excerpts from the AJ's press conference this week will already know, but making sure that's very plain. There's now a debate about whether that's the end of the matter in the Porter case. Mm. Uh, Obviously, with Brittany Higgins, a police process is on foot. In the Porter case, the New South Wales police basically determined there wasn't a, a threshold there to proceed with a prosecution because the woman who, uh, who alleged the assault tragically is dead. So the government over the last several days has said, rule of law, end of story, you know, the process is run to the end of the line, innocent until proven guilty, the end, case closed. What's your response to that? Well, they're kidding themselves if they think that's the end of it. 
And look, I was one of the few people who received the brief of evidence, uh, the woman's own statement to the police that had been prepared, the letter from the friends urging the Prime Minister to, to take this seriously. And it is harrowing reading. Um, mm, it certainly is. I, I'm, I must say I was just deeply disappointed to hear on Monday when the Prime Minister first responded on this issue that he hadn't even bothered to read the woman's own statement, let alone the letter from the friends. It just, it beggars belief actually that this would be dismissed as simply something more of a, an allegation not to be taken seriously and just put it off to the police and don't have to think about it again. Her Prime Minister really should have read that letter. He, he can't in any way argue that he has heard her voice and listened to her and given any weighting to that while he's had a conversation with Christian Porter, he tells him he didn't do it, so case closed. It's just not good enough. And we are, in, so what and we are because of the context that all of this is unfolding, in the middle of a reckoning, the women of Australia are not going to accept this. Now, Christian Porter may very well be innocent. I don't know. What I've seen is the woman's account of this. I've listened to her friends who say she's a very, she was very credible. I've, I've read the diary notes from when she was 16 years old as you know, corroborating evidence. There isn't a, a proper process in the justice system that we can go through now because she sadly took her life. There is no police process. There is no investigation. But there is still a very serious question mark hanging over the head of the Attorney-General. And so if indeed he is innocent, there needs to be a process for dealing with this created. An independent review is one way forward. And that was originally suggested. I mean, you know, I've been calling for it all week, but actually it was originally suggested by the friends of this woman themselves. And their mm. sensitivity in this issue has is been extraordinary. And I really, this has been missed and I really want to stress this. Right from the beginning, they said they didn't want a witch hunt on this. They understood that Christian Porter had a right to have his name protected, that he uh, had a right to the presumption of innocence, but without a proper legal, pro uh, an established legal process to go through, there needed to be another mechanism. If the Prime Minister thinks that Christian Porter's press conference is enough to push this issue off to the to the never-never, he is seriously misreading the mood and the desire in the community. But worse than that, I think his attitude is sending a really dangerous message to women and girls in particular about whether sexual assault is taken seriously by anyone in authority. I think that's a very, very dangerous message to send. It's the exact opposite to what we need. And when you hear people like Grace Tame speaking with such eloquence, strength and desperation, I had stories of people's fathers reaching out to them this week after Grace Tame's speech saying, you know, this is 60, 70-year-old men saying, that Grace Tame, isn't she amazing? The Prime Minister has a problem. 
if young women like Grace Tame are making sense and are touching the hearts and minds of these, this generation of men who have seen this behaviour go on for far too long and want to see it changed. But the mm. Prime Minister can't see that. He's not as clever of a politician as people make out. <laughs> it's good. Uh, let's let's end there. Let's see how clever a politician the Prime Minister is anyway over the coming weeks. Thank you very much, Sarah, for the conversation and the spirit in which we've had it. I really do appreciate it. And uh, thank you. Uh, Thanks, Catherine. Also, thank you to lovely Hannah, who cuts the show, who's listening in because Sarah's remote in Adelaide today. Thanks to Miles Martignoni, who's the EP of the show. Thank you all of you guys for listening, sharing, participating, etc. We'll be back next week. <laughs>